Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones Rewatch Edition. I am Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson and joining me is Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Hello, Richard. Ahoy. (laughs) We are on number three of our 15 episode countdown to the final season of Game of Thrones where we are running through our like best slash most essential episodes that you should rewatch or revisit before season eight is upon us and later in April. We are here today to talk about season two, episode nine, Blackwater, which first aired May 27th, 2012, written by George R. R. Martin. You might have heard of him, directed by Neil Marshall. Um, this is, oh, oh, as I have with every other episode so far, I've given myself a challenge of a 15 word or less fewer recap. I have come under the mark this time. So you did it in 11. I did it in 11. (laughs) Here's Blackwater in 11 words. Cersei says the word rape a lot. Green fire goes boom. 
So that yeah, is I think that's pretty succinct. That's the Battle of Blackwater. This is our first battle episode, quote unquote, of Game of Thrones, something that they would become very famous for. Uh we will talk sort of more broadly about why we think this episode is so important, but first we have a few little like awards that we want to hand out. Um I am gonna start with my obvious MVP of the episode. It is the Queen herself. The future queen, the once and future queen, Cersei Lannister. Well, uh, booze bag. <laughs> this is a <laughs> real funky episode for her. <laughs> this is this is a real more wine episode for Cersei Lannister. Love her in this episode. Uh, Richard, what's yours? I mean, I think I'm probably on on your same page, though. I think that there's some great Varys stuff in this episode, although yeah. a weird scene about him that I we should talk about in our sort of more general discussion about it. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't deny that Cersei is sort of the, the centerpiece of this episode. The sneaky MVP of this episode for me, actually, I was going to put someone that I will mention later and I last minute substitution. I'm picking the national, uh, which, which did a version oh. of the reigns <laughs> yeah. of Castamere yeah. that played over the closing credits. Uh, that was sort of a big deal when that happened. So, uh, the band, the national, my sneaky MVP of this episode. How about you? Uh, my sneaky MVP this episode is I had to look this up. Hallen the pyromancer, the crazy old man who's like responsible for all of this, uh, green fire. Um, yeah. and when it goes off, uh, and they're all watching from the, the battlements or whatever, he's just like in the background with his little hat on, kind of giggling, like he's so excited to finally see this happening. Um, and so yeah, I think that was one of my favorite moments in this episode. I know I'm thinking of a specific animated character, but I can't think of what it is. But I, if this were an animated thing, I feel like he would have like one tooth and just be like cackling. Oh, fully. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, all right. And we are going to now name our like number one quotes from the episode. We are going to do our best to perform them. I'm going to try to do better than I did last time. Uh, here I go. This is my Rory McCann as the hound impression. Uh, fuck the King's God. Fuck the city. Fuck the King. Oh, so with a good direct look at <laughs> stupid old Joffrey. <laughs> bye bye. Yeah. Um so there um, you go. Mine is very quick. It's just drink girl. <laughs> Cersei <laughs> just being like, come on, like take a real sip. Um it's funny, I that was a bad Cersei, but um yeah. There's another line she has, I think it's like Sense is like, Oh, but you're doing a you're doing good things. We're all here. And Cersei goes, because I had to. Yeah. <laughs> like something like that. It's just like Sansa so is a real goon in this episode. <laughs> well, she's both a goon and, um, heck, I'll just say it now. I was going to save it for later. She's, she's a goon through most of it. You know, like when she's like, shall we all sing a hymn together? Mm-hmm. Um, but she does have that one scene where she's like kind of goading Joffrey into getting oh, onto the battlefield. Totally. Was pretty great. Like that's that's like a spark of the Sansa to come, where she's like, "Oh, but surely m- your grace would be on the vanguard." Mm-hmm. Um, super great. All right, best dress this episode. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's one true queen in this episode, Cersei Lannister, in her golden breastplate, fashion breastplate that she wears, as if to be like, "I'm in the battle too." More wine, uh, Richard. What's yours? I mean, it's tough to argue with that, but uh, I don't think Shay looks pretty good. Yeah, she's got that sassy little, like, blade strapped to her mm-hmm. thigh, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good when accessory. Like, when she's like, nobody's raping me. By the way, really genuinely, they say the word rape so many times in this it's, episode. Yeah. It's a lot. All right. Uh, and what a convenient 
time for me to transition to our ship of the episode, the two characters or objects or something that we are rooting for. I gotta say, I don't think we've yet seen uh, Patrick Payne go to the brothel, so his reputation is not there. But just seeing the like very gentle, thoughtful way he dresses Tyrion in that armor, I'm I'm shipping Pod with anyone, literally anyone, and Patrick Payne. Don't sleep on Patrick Payne. He's here to help you with your armor. Uh, what do you get? Well, it's funny to use the word ship in this episode. <laughs> um, but I gotta say that my friend Hal and the Pyromancer, it's not really a ship, it actually happened. Like, he, like they finally got together, him and the fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his burning passion. Yeah. You consummated yeah, in this episode. I, I'm looking at a picture of him, uh, online and it's just very funny. Um, making me laugh. I love that little hat. <laughs> yeah, his little bonnet is truly great with his little chain too. All right. So, um, so yeah, so those are our words for this episode. And then we're going to talk about like why this is uh, the best slash most essential. It's funny. Um, I have gotten into various arguments with people over the years over what the best season of Game of Thrones is. Mm. And a lot of times I'll end up arguing for season two because there's so much palace intrigue. And I really love all the Tyrion stuff in this season. And, uh, you know, just like Dinklage really feeling himself in, in the height of Tyrion's powers and all that sort of stuff like that. Um, that being said, this, this is our only season two episode we're talking about because there aren't like episodes that stand out the way that this one does. Um, as I mentioned, this is the first of the, of the battle episodes that, you know, we'll see, we'll see many more to come. Um, but it does something maybe because George wrote it, maybe because they didn't have the budget to, you know, go full battle or whatever, but it does something very, true to the books, which is hop back and forth between these POVs and you get what's happening with Sansa and Cersei and what's happening with like Stannis and Tyrion and Joffrey and all of them, the men and the women folk. And, uh, you know, and you shed away a lot of the other plot lines, which I don't, which is relatively new to Game of Thrones as well. They're like, we don't check in with Daenerys or Arya or any of the, of the other things, you know, it's almost um, a bottle episode. Almost, yeah, yeah, almost as close as you can get. Um, and yeah, it's just, um, I think it's, it's masterful in that way. Neil Marshall is a director who I, who I really like. He, he did that really creepy horror film, The Descent, mm. about women spelunkers and vampires, <laughs> cave people well, that I really bad. love. They're bad monsters. They're not vampires. <laughs> Let's be fair. Sorry, bad monsters, cave people. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm a big Neil Marshall fan and I really like, you know, eventually the, the battle episode director of Game of Thrones will become Mikhail Sapochnik. But what Neil Marshall does here, he, his violence is, I think, a little bit more brutal. Uh, there's yeah. nothing like elegant about this episode except for when the green fire just explodes and it's very beautiful. But in his like close combat, um, you just really feel every squelch, every sort of hack and all of that. So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of what he does here. What do you think? Yeah. I think that this is one of those episodes that people who'd read the book were like, how the fuck are they going to do that? Yeah. You know, because it's so big and, you know, television had certainly expanded by 2012, but like game of Thrones was the one doing the expanding. And so, uh, just trying to be like, trying to imagine like this was pre Netflix series, you know, house of cards was coming the next year. Like this was HBO was still the sort of premier thing. And, but we, I, I had doubts that even they could pull something like this off. I think that there are moments in rewatching this episode where 
there's a sort of deceptive closeness and a smallness to the battle stuff. Like a lot of the battle out front just happens in front of the door. You know, we don't really see much beyond it. It's very dark past that. And, you know, I think with, I think the boat stuff is, 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 you know, that's, that's really where they spent their money. And I think it paid off without being, um, just spectacle for spectacle's sake. You know, I think there actually really is a, um, weight to that, especially the, the wildfire scene and like, like what is happening and, and how serious it is and how sort of unprecedented. I think that like Tyrion's face as he watches his plan work, uh, is both a satisfaction to some extent, but also a sort of horror. Um, and I think it's really important that the show at this point, maybe not so much later, but at this point is, is cognizant of the sort of the meaning of all this violence. So they, um, they grabbed, they got $8 million, um, for this episode, uh, which is a laughably small sum now, seemingly. Um, but it's $2 million more than they, you know, usually spent. Um, and Weiss and Betty have given an interview, I think in like 2014, where they said, we almost had no battle at all for budgetary reasons. We came very, very close to having all the action take place off screen the way plays have handled battle scenes for a few thousand years. To our minds, the entire season builds this clash. And if we didn't see any of it, we were undercutting the story and shortchanging the audience. And I think that that's true. I mean, like I've been a sort of vocal critic of the way in which I think the show sometimes relies too much on spectacle these days, but I think you really did need to have, like, like as much as I love the Cersei Sansa stuff, like, imagine if the Battle of Blackwater took place elsewhere. I just, I, I think they needed this. They made the right decision. HBO made the right decision backing them. This, you know, the ratings for Game of Thrones early on were, like, good, but they weren't tremendous, so... Um, as we talked about in some of these, these others rewatching episodes, this is still HBO taking a bit of a gamble, giving them an extra two mil to do this. No small thing. Um, and yeah, I, it's just, it's, it, it really pays off. That being said, like, I, I gotta give it to an episode of a battle episode of Game of Thrones, um, that has time for like Cersei Lannister to sit on a throne with her son telling him a story and preparing to feed him poison. Like, it's just, it's, it's a long scene and it's so good. And Lena Headey's so good, uh, in that role and, and, uh, original Tommen, original, original flavor, baby Tommen. Very cute. Um, yeah, I just, I really love this episode. Well, there's so many character dynamics. There's so many plates spinning at once, you know, and it's, it's to, to do, to keep character consistent and motivation consistent while also attending to these huge, this huge special effects thing, um, you know, to not lose sight of the humanity of, of these, or lack thereof of some of these people. Um, you know, that's a really tricky balancing act. And I think that it's one that, that Game of Thrones at its best, um, manages quite well in a way that, um, other big spectacle shows have not. Um, not that there are that many shows you could compare to Game of Thrones, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I, I think that like you, I don't, you know, uh, I, I have maybe not soured on, but gotten a little tired of the battle episodes of this show. Um, but I think that for this being the first foray, it, it really does something, you know, that was, I mean, I remember like just being like, wow, when I watched it on, on television on, on that Sunday night, you know, just being like they, they pulled it off and then some. Um, and I think that's been part of the thrill of the show for the, the, for the people the world over. 
I actually, I think their battle up, their most successful battle episodes for me are the ones that are only actually partially a battle episode. Yeah. So, you know, not to spoil things to come that we're going to talk about, but like Hard Home, um, the, which is a great battle episode. That's only like the last, I think, 20, 15, 20 minutes of that episode or spoils of war, which was last season, season seven with Jamie versus the dragon. Like that feels like a battle episode, but that's really only a small part of that episode. And so like it's, I think when you balance that spectacle with uh, other meaty drama that I'm really into it. And, um, and this is an example of that. A uh, few other things that I want to mention. One, R.I.P. Davos's son, Mathos, who yeah. we barely knew ye. Um, more importantly, there's like, there's like a key, a few uh, motivational scenes on this, uh, motivational speeches on this. Tyrion's got a great one, right? Like, I think he says like, let's fuck him in the asses or something like that. It's a yeah. great, long, rousing Tyrion speech. He gets the whole crowd on his side. Uh, and it's funny because the last episode we just talked about Baylor, he also gives a motivational battle speech. So we got two Tyrion battle speeches back to back. Um, Stannis's battle speech, this is it in its entirety. Come with me and take this city. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, That's classic Stannis. Stannis. Yeah. Classic Stannis. Um, he also, uh, comparing this to Baylor, which is the last episode we talked about too, in that episode you have Rob Stark really like considering the weight of the things that he had to sacrifice in order to win this battle in, in Baylor. Uh, in this episode, you know, Stannis makes a tactical decision like, okay, our, our fleet is fucked. Like we're going to storm the castle. And one of his men goes like hundreds of men will die to goes thousands. And he just doesn't seem. That troubled by well because he's That's, he's guided by this right kind of messianic almost religious conviction uh that like has him like it doesn't matter what happens as long as I get this thing that I am destined for you know and I think it shows the peril of that you know um yeah. it certainly uh was part of the undoing of uh, Davos's son um and in the book I feel like he loses all of his sons in that in that scene and I don't know if the show is I forget if they address that later but uh yeah it's a it's a real big loss for him. Well, they really streamlined Davos's family in the show because, like, as I'm fond of mentioning, he still has a wife somewhere that he just has forgotten about for five seasons or so. So, right. you know, um, <laughs> uh, will no one think of Davos's wife? Eh, certainly not Davos. Okay. So is there anything else we want to mention in this episode? We get, we get like some hound and Sansa stuff. Um, the hound, you know, fucking off forever. Great. We haven't talked at, about Joffrey Baratheon at all. And, and I think we should mention that. Um, much as you had praise for Viserys, like watching these Joffrey episodes, I'm like, man, I miss this kid. I loved this kid so much. Like he was so good in this role. Well, I so, think it was, yeah. I think it, it, what it is is that, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful performance by a kid who, who has kind of given up acting, right? Like he, yeah, he's was, like, He's an economist now or something yeah, like that. Um, yeah. But like, it's a wonderful performance because I like, and, and the writing is so good for it because it, there's something arch about it. Like there's, he's awful and detestable and you can't wait for him to get his comeuppance, but he's not like, you know, like annihilatingly bad, uh, in the way that, um, uh, Bolton, uh, in later seasons was, you Ramsey. know, the, Ramsey. Ramsey. Yeah. Just yeah. this like crazy, like, come on, man. Like, like, like just, like lugubrious sort of, you know, sadism. Um, you know, it was fun to hate Joffrey. Uh, it wasn't exhausting. It was just kind of like, Oh, that little shit, you know? <laughs> and, and it, and it's, it's why it's so satisfying when the hound kind of tells him off and knowing that he sort of is doing so with impunity. Um, because what's that kid going to do? 
Um, yeah, he was a great character, well played. Uh, not long for this world uh, after this episode, though. Yeah. Um. So, well, no, he gets we he gets a whole other season to be terrible. Does then, he? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't kick it until season four. Oh wow! Um, I thought it was early season three. Gosh. Yeah, I yeah, know. So we got a few, a little more. Time oh, right, because we haven't talk. even had the other thing. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that's Jack Gleason, who is like you know pretty much retired from uh, you know film and TV entirely. Uh, we are the poorer for it on uh, Game of Thrones, certainly. And yeah, I think I think that's all I want to say. I mean, like some 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 fun Lancel Lannister stuff in this episode. Uh, you know, Cersei yelling at Lancel, delightful as always. Um, yeah, and like it was fun. Be- we're being reminded, like, oh yeah, he was there. He's he's been with that story for a long time until he meets his end. You know, um, the show yeah. does not forget. I think he's especially foppish in season one. He's got, I think he's got one of the worst wigs that anyone has, and uh, it lo- it just looks like very silly on him. But um, yeah. Oh, and then we should mention. So this is where you know um, Tyrion gets his big you know, the big gash on his face. And um, I was thinking about this when I was watching this episode. You mentioned this on another episode uh, of this rewatch that we did that um, there wasn't as much tension there about spoilers and cliffhangers and twists and stuff like that. Because even though obviously there are like twists in Game of Thrones in the early seasons, like the fact that so many of us knew what happened because we had read the books, just it felt less fraught. The fandom felt less fraught. Uh, uh, Obviously, of course, there were fewer people watching, but like, um, the fact that Tyrion goes down in this episode and all of us who had read the books knew he's not dead, you know, it just didn't feel like that big of a deal to like keep that a secret or anything like that. You know, it's revealed in the next episode, episode 10. Um, but in the books, it is a little bit of a George R. Martin loves his sneaky, point of view is this character dead chapters uh so this is one of those chapters in the book where Tyrion, like you know he gets much more grievously injured in the book his his nose gets lopped off basically um and you don't know if he's dead and so this is like a a cliffhanger chapter in the book but in the show you're just sort of like yeah he got he got, got hit on his face and he's down but he's not out um so I just, I just remember that being like, I, I, I think I was doing my other podcast cast of Kings at the time with, with my friend Dave Chen, who was not spoiled on anything. And I do remember I had to like, not confirm or deny whether or not Tyrion was alive at the end of this episode, but it wasn't like so loaded as it later became. So, it was, you know, breezier times in the Game of Thrones fandom. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party, or having family over, or even just cooking for yourself, when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration. A kitchen with no space. A toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, that does it for our discussion of Season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater. Stay tuned for our conversation with the episode's director, Neil Marshall, as well as for the announcement of which episode we will be talking about next time. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We are joined today by director Neil Marshall, who you may know from his films like The Descent, Centurion, Dog Soldiers, which stars Liam Cunningham, a.k.a. Davos Seaworthy himself. Or if you're a Game of Thrones fanatic, you might know him from directing this episode, Blackwater, as well as a season four battle episode, Watchers on the Wall. We talked to Neil mainly about Blackwater, but also about his hopes for the future, the final season, and his friend Liam Cunningham. Uh, Neil Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Good. All good, yeah. Um, All right, so I wanted to talk to you about this episode of Game of Thrones, Season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater, which did so much to put the show on the map in terms of what it could do for big spectacles. Like, I remember in the first season... They didn't even have the budget to do a battle episode, and season two was sort of a game yeah. No. At, w- at what point were you brought into the process? Uh, kind of at the last minute. It was um, it was a slightly crazy thing. I got a phone call on a Saturday morning, out of the blue, um, from one of the producers, uh, basically saying, "How would you like to come and direct an episode of Game of Thrones?" And immediately I was just like, "I would love to." Next month, next week, I said, "Well." Uh, you have to start Monday morning, <laughs> and you'll have a week. You'll have a week to prep the biggest episode we've ever done. Um, and the reason was was that the original director, for uh, personal reasons, has had to to leave that show. They had to leave that episode, and they needed somebody in a hurry. And as it turned out, I'd made a, a movie a couple of years before that called Centurion. Um, historical adventure thing actually it was done on a budget but it's a historical adventure movie and a lot of the crew from that had gone on to work on Game of Thrones and so when this director dropped out the several of the crew members the stunt coordinator and the horse master and various other people literally just like walked up to the producers and said here's Neil's phone number give him a call he'll save you <laughs> he will come and <laughs> sort you out so I watched the entire first season on the Sunday we wow. shot the whole thing I think it was like in 15 very wet and rainy nights. And when you hear reports now of them shooting like 11 weeks for a single battle episode or something like that, are you like, are you jealous? Are you like, I wish I had 11 weeks to work on my episode. Very, very jealous. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot of them, you see that they, they get to work in like these beautiful 
like Spain and Morocco and stuff like that. And uh, both of my episodes were shot in this old quarry uh, outside Belfast on very, very cold, rainy, muddy nights up to my knees in mud along with everybody else. And, uh, yeah, there was no glamour and no no time to, to stand around and think about it. We, uh, the first one, I mean, when I did the watches on the wall, I had a little bit longer. Right. But uh, certainly on, on Donald Blackwater, we, I think it was like 15 days to shoot the whole episode, not just the battle stuff. So, yeah. I remember there being these hysterical headlines at the time, uh, you know, oh my God, this hour of TV cost HBO $8 million, something like that. But that seems yeah. so small now. Uh, staring on the barrel of what you had to pull off on, on that budget, was there anything that you thought you weren't going to be able to get away with? We had to depict this whole fleet of ships, but we only had one actual physical ship to work on. Um, you know, we had to depict this you know, King's Landing, but we had a, a section of the castle on and the beach and stuff like that was again was this the bottom of the quarry was kind of flooded so and it had this sort of a sort of a beach kind of thing and yeah we did the whole beach landing there and you know we're trying to do something that's the scale of like a private line or something like that but on this little quarry thing but uh, what I'd done what I'd proved to them that I could do with with my films was make a budget look you know three or four times bigger than it actually was and I just put all of that into practice with this as well. One of my favorite parts about this battle episodes is how it, it hops back and forth between the action on the beach and the action inside the palace yeah. with Cersei and Sansa. How do you calibrate those two moods, those two very different tonal pieces of this episode? Uh, well, thankfully, um, I had an excellent script to work <laughs> on. <laughs> so, um, you know, those those guys are amazing writers and you know, they provide that backbone of the character and the drama and I remember talking to Lena uh Hedy about her character and what uh, the way she was behaving towards Sansa within the group and I think I just simply said to her, I said, You're kind of like the, the drunk aunt at a wedding <laughs> like just being very kind of like obnoxious and leery and not caring about what anybody thinks and making a nuisance of yourself and she was like, "Yeah, I get it, totally get it." And and but but also, you know, so you've got to you've got to handle the scene in that respect. But then you've got to handle the scene in respect of the bigger picture, which is like, okay, you're all in here, but there's people hammering at the gates trying to kill you. So like, how does that affect you? How does that affect your performance? Right. Um, and understanding, keeping out people's minds all the time. It's like you're not just in a comfortable room; you're in a comfortable room inside a castle that's being attacked. Um, so no, it's 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 always like working a balance, but it all boils down to the quality of the script. Yeah, another another scene that I love, you know, speaking of the quality of the script and just sort of narrowing down a battle episode into character is that other Cersei sequence in the throne room when she's there with little Tommen on her lap and you know thinking that she has to end it all for his safety. Can you talk about you know memories you have shooting that that particular scene? Well, the biggest challenge with something like that is like how can you shoot. Trying to find new ways. How can you shoot the throne room, like in a in a way that that it tells the story, but also is perhaps in a way that people haven't seen it before. Um, so you don't just want to shoot the same thing in the same way again and again and again. And and also you're you're dealing with like the scale of this set, but you also want to make it a very intimate and dramatic moment between these two characters sitting on the throne together. So trying to put them and in some respects put them in the bigger picture to make them look as small as possible within this huge world uh, tells you something about them and, and how 
how small their problems are in the big world, but at the same time how important they are in the big world, um, because without them, everything else would fall apart. It's a it's a juggling act, I suppose. You know, when it comes out well, you you, you keep all the balls in the air and everything works out fine. Try not to drop one. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about uh, you already mentioned making one ship look like a fleet. Um, what's the what is another sort of large stunt or small stunt even that is harder was harder to pull off than people might think when they're watching it? There was a scene where they run up to the wall and uh, somebody throws a rock over and it hits a guy on the head next to uh, Stannis. And, you know, and, and he reacts to that. And, and, and it all happens in a flash on the screen, but that took a long time to set up. And I was insistent on that. We try and do it as practically as possible. So we, like, we built this dummy with a collapsible head and we literally dropped a rock on it. And, and things <laughs> and getting, uh, and getting uh, you know, Stannis' actual reaction to that with the blood and stuff like that. Um, uh, and then the smaller boats, the skiffs or whatever, with all the guys in charging up the beach and trying to, we had, I think we had about eight or nine actual boats full of guys. And I was always terrified. All these guys are like in armor with swords. And I was always terrified if the boat, you know, collapsed or um, flipped over or something like that because, you know, they'd just sink. <laughs> it was all that heavy metal right. that I carried. They'd just sink. So there was always that concern. And, and this was happening in like in a howling gale, in the pouring rain. And everybody, you know, everybody looks at the episode and think, oh, we must have like bought in rain machines or whatever. No, no, no. This is all real rain. In, in, in some respects, both episodes that I did of, of Game of Thrones enhanced my education and knowledge and understanding of visual effects massively. I'd not really done uh, major visual effects pieces before that. So it was a, it was a learning process for me, too. And what did you think when you first saw that what the wildfire would look, that big green explosion on the screen, which is one of the most iconic images from the show, when you first saw that all done and shiny, what did you think? <laughs> it, was, it made me giggle with glee just to see that it all come off. Because, you know, we were out there shooting kind of reaction shots to, to this thing and uh, elements that would go into this explosion and then literally just handing it over to the visual effects guys and they gave me like a, a, an animatic of, of what we were after, and you know, so I could see essentially what we were trying to achieve. And we stuck very closely to that. And ultimately, the end shot, you know, strongly resembles that, but with like much more finesse and, and uh, uh, the, the colours and the, you know, all the detail that you get from the finished product. I'm wondering, you went from season two, where Game of Thrones was, you know, as you say, there was. It wasn't quite what it became. There was some buzz around it, but it still felt a little bit like a scrappy underdog genre show in certain regards. Yeah. Um, to season four, you know, Weiss and many have talked about how getting to the end of season three, they're like, we know if we can make it there, we can make it anywhere. If we can pull off the end of season three, we've got it. So what was it like coming in on season four to sort of, a, was it a much more assured production? Could you feel a difference in, in where they were just two years later? Well, even, yeah, by that point, uh, in my season four, I mean, Game of Thrones was part of the zeitgeist by then. It was, it was a cultural phenomenon by then. Um, you know, stuff on YouTube and everybody's talking about it and people are writing about it and you could just feel it in the air. So to be invited back to be a part of this thing, which is like a television revolution, and knowing that the stakes have gone up so much uh, by them for everybody involved. And you could feel that they, well, they felt the pressure to deliver as much as anything. I'm, I'm wondering if, um, 
I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but if over those two episodes, if there's an actor that you found particularly, I don't know, I will just say like even interesting to work with, maybe you hadn't worked with them before and you were excited to see what they could do, or maybe it's like Liam Cunningham and you had worked with them before, but excited to work with him in this other context. Like what is there one performer that stands out for you? Well, I mean, it's easy to say like Liam, cause it's just a pleasure to work with him. Obviously I, I didn't work with him uh, on the second episode where I blew him off the ship on the first one. And that was great fun. <laughs> right. I think, you know, like on the first one I was working with Peter Dinklage was just such a joy. Um, such a lovely, lovely guy and just brings so much to that character and had so much fun and I think he really enjoyed like getting into the action and stuff and taking people's legs off with, with action and stuff because he hadn't done all of that in the show at that point so so that was a lot of fun and then I think on the second one I, I loved working with Kit uh, again it was like I hadn't worked with any actor who was so nimble on his feet and so great at doing like the sword, sword fighting and stuff like that um, so physically, like, confident that he, you know, just has these moves down pat. It was just such a pleasure to, to, to work with an actor that, that's standing. Um, but I don't know, it was like, the, the, just the cast is so uniformly amazing that there was no one person that was like everybody, but, you know, it's, it's hard to choose. Absolutely. I also really love the contrast in, in Blackwater that you have between Peter's very rousing battle cry speech. And then, uh, Stephen Delane is Stannis. Who's basically like, um, let's go. <laughs> That's it. Right. That's the Stannis battle yeah. speech. It's just like, let's, let's go. Take this castle. Yeah. <laughs> He's very funny. He's like, right, it's so understated. <laughs> but then like, uh, and also in, in both episodes, um, there is a rousing speech, um, in, in what's the war as well. And, um, unfortunately it was pouring with rain on both nights and I was, uh, I was really worried I thought oh no people are going to think that that's my thing it's like anytime I make a speech it's going to be in a pouring rain but it's not my fault it's just raining I can't do anything about it um, and then on the second episode they, the CGI guys removed the rain <laughs> I don't know how they did it, it wow. like some, 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 some magic I don't even think it's to do with computers I think they use actual sorcery to get them to rain <laughs> Are you still watching the show now that, you know, you haven't done episodes in season four, but are you still, like, a fan? Oh, that's, that's the thing is, like, why it's such a joy to be a part of, because I'm, I'm also a huge fan of the show. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've followed it all the way, and I cannot wait for the final season. I'm, I, mean, I cannot wait for it. I'm a huge fan. And then hoping that everybody's going to get vengeance in the end. <laughs> Do you think it's going to be a, a happy ending? Oh, God. Well, knowing this, the way this, this, this story's gone so far, anything's possible. Ooh, I like that game. Anything's possible. Um, Sir Davos, your friend Liam Cunningham on the Iron Throne, is that possible? Davos, I've seen, I think one of, the, um, uh, one of the posters for the new season, one of them has a picture of Davos on the throne. And I was like, yep, that's it. That's what I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, Liam, Liam owes you a pint for that one, I think. And um, I think so. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Neil, for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it's useful. All right, that does it for season two, episode nine, Blackwater. Next time we will be discussing maybe my favorite episode season three episode five we will be joined by co-executive producer and longtime writer on the series brian cogman who will discuss kiss by fire as well as 
his entire tenure on Game of Thrones. It's a great conversation. We will see you next time. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.